0: details.
1: Welcome to The Things We Do For Love. I'm Izzy Sutti, and this week I am joined by the absolutely fantastic Alan Davies, Davies, Davis, how many other ways can you say it? I think it's just those two. I've known Alan for a really long time and I can't believe I've never actually asked him how to pronounce his surname, but maybe he's never asked me how to pronounce mine. Um, I love him and really enjoyed recording this one. I first met Alan when we did a show called White Together, which criminally only ran for one series where he played a chef and I played a kooky waitress who got everything wrong. We've been friends ever since and he is a great guy and a fantastic stand-up. I'm sure you will know who he is, um, but he is a very lovely person as well as a fantastic stand-up. Yes, we recorded this remotely because of the pandemic and we actually went in ways that I didn't expect to with this one and I really enjoyed it. So please sit back and enjoy The Things We Do For Love with me and Alan Davis. Welcome to The Things We Do For Love. The Things We Do For Love. <laughs> the Things We Do For Love. This week I'm joined by...
2: Alan Davis.
1: His favourite <laughs> cheese is...
2: Very mature cheddar, number seven.
1: Is that a brand? No. Is that an actual type of cheese?
2: It's a rating, number seven, it's hard to oh, get. Oh
1: my God, that's such a specific answer. It's
2: almost like a proof, like alcohol.
1: Oh, yeah, like when you get aged whiskey and stuff. If
2: right? they say mature cheddar and it's five, it's not mature enough.
1: And what does it go up to?
2: I think seven.
1: So seven is the most mature. Yeah,
2: if anyone could get me an eight, I'll meet them behind the back of any <laughs> supermarket. <laughs> I
1: meet mean, by the bins with a number eight. Um, his favourite cake is...
2: Oh, that's tough. Battenberg... Really? I say Battenberg just like a reflex, because I liked it when I was eight. But actually, I think now I probably would have... Actually, my daughter made a carrot cake in the lockdown that was so good, I nearly opened a cafe, except you weren't allowed to open a cafe. Cause it yeah,
1: open. it was so ironic that the <laughs> one time that you want <laughs> to
2: <laughs> <laughs> make was it there, out it? of this kid.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's not at school. Might as well do something with her. Did it have, like, cream... I think real carrot cake has cream cheese in the, the icing, doesn't it?
2: Who knows? Because if you go too near, she's only ten, but if you go too near when she's cooking, she's like Marco Pierre White, she'll stab you.
1: I'm like that.
2: With a palette knife. You can't give her anything sharp.
1: I get really defensive if people... Sometimes Alice comes and stirs a saucepan. I'm I'm like, do you want to do it?
2: (laughs) You know when a marriage is in trouble when you've got separate kitchens? (laughs)
1: Yeah, separate bathrooms feels fine, doesn't it? Yeah, separate separate bedrooms is fine. Separate bedrooms is fine.
2: But a separate hob?
1: Yeah, maybe that's the moment. You could have separate everything except for (laughs) even two hobs in the same kitchen maybe is the beginning of the end.
2: The only thing you've got in common is you've got the same front door, although one of you usually goes in the back.
1: Oh, my God, this guy I went out with went... I was in my 20s. I always felt like I loved him like 51% and he loved me 49%. And I was always just trying to get it to 50 50. That's all I wanted. One day I said to him, Where do you So see- We've been together for about two years and I was like, Where do you see the future? It's like a conversation you have with your agent, like, what, you know? What's going to happen to us in the future? And he was like, um, I think I could stretch towards getting houses next door to each other, but I'm not sure I ever really want to live with someone. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like the complete opposite. I was like, wanted to like decorate a house with them and like, you know, those dew looks adverts where they're like flicking paint at each other. It was, like...
2: Oh, I hate decorating adverts when a couple's decorating. That's never ever happened. No, no I know, I know. Done up a living room, smiling the whole time, <laughs> stopping occasionally for a 69 or something, then going back and opening another <laughs> pot of paint and getting aroused again. Not true. Just horrible, ill tempered, fatigue ridden, nasty spilled tea. You've not a cup over. Don't put it on the floor. No, no. It's a total lie.
1: No, the biggest no, lies is.
2: out there, Dulux. Although the paints are excellent. Just yeah, well exactly. So I mean f- look, the adverts pop.
1: worked in a strange <laughs> way. If adverts make you angry, maybe they're still effective. <laughs> you still remember the product.
2: My builder had done up some of her house and painted it. Katie, my wife Katie, wanted a farrow and ball colour so we go to try and get a farrow and ball colour and he says that's so, no, you can't as soon as you have one shower all the paint comes off the wall you it mark you only have to look at it and it marks it's just silly names for normal colours and we can make up anything they do and uh fortunately we ignored him because obviously that's a load of absolute bollocks <laughs> they, they can't i mean it's not bollocks that they've got silly names
1: they have i mean it feels i went to this house the other day and What's that really expensive wallpaper? William Morris, is it?
2: William Morris, yeah, that's a famous one, yeah. Yeah.
1: I was filming um, a corporate training video that was really fun in this house. The house was, like, unbelievably nice. And they had William Morris wallpaper everywhere. And I was thinking, could you get this from, like, B&Q and say it was William Morris? Like, if you told people it was William Morris, would they question it? Something from B&Q. I
2: think it's like with the Farrow and Ball paint. If you said that's a Farrow and Ball green... Yeah. The trouble is, because their colours, they're slightly distinctive. It's enough that they can charge, you know, double what everyone else charges. And all you're really doing is saying to people, I'm the sort of person who'll pay double the necessary rate for paint.
1: (laughs) I want to be fleeced so that I can say it's from Farrow and Ball.
2: (laughs) Someone I used to know to say, might as well just write mug on your forehead... (laughs) Love that. Before you go shopping, <laughs> just write mug across your forehead. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Was there anyone in your hometown with a tattoo on their face?
2: Oh, what people used to do. We had near where we live. I lived in Loughton, which is kind of suburban Essex in Epping Forest. Quite nice, really, because of the forest mainly. But near to Loughton was the Debden Estate, which was built after the war, and it was built to rehome people who were were being rehoused from the East End of London. Thousands of really working-class people (laughs) turned up with a whole load of other attitudes, anyway, and they kind of set them up in this estate. At the other end, it was Loughton, and there was Debden, and never the two. You just wouldn't go there. And on the estate, a gang formed called the Debden Skins. And they were a bunch of violent uh, National Front-supporting hooligans. And they used to have tattoos on their faces. It became a trend to have spiders' webs tattooed yeah, up Yeah, I remember neck.
1: spiders' webs.
2: We were told that one of them had had skins tattooed on the inside of his bottom lip. And anyway, the reputation of the Debden skins was such we were all absolutely terrified of them turning up anywhere. And they did frequently turn up at gigs and stuff and just lay into people. But then years later, I wrote a book, not the book that I've just written, but the book I wrote about 10 years ago, which is about growing up in my teenage years. I've
1: got it. Oh, this, a sale? Yeah, My ah, Favourite People.
2: My Favourite People, yeah. that's it. I wrote that, yeah. and we made some programmes for Channel 4 based on that book, and the Debden Skins are mentioned in that book. And we met some of the Debden Skins, and it couldn't have been nicer. Lovely. They're sort of retired now. yes. In yes. their 40s. They still got some of the still the same brands and the still clothing, they still look like they used to, but really just like anyone middle aged, I can't really be can't bothered, be bothered. <laughs> to launch an unprovoked racist <laughs> attack on a bus passenger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> when strictly's on and I can have a cup of tea and stay in. Why would I bother? It's not worth it anymore. (laughs) Spider's Web's tattoos probably look better on a young neck, I imagine. I think everything looks better
2: on a young neck.
1: God, of course it does.
2: I'm 54 now. I don't like wearing a T-shirt in public. Oh, no, look at these. These arms are withering. I know. I'm only a few years from 60, and 60-something arms are just awful. And as for a 60-something... My father-in-law, on a hot day, strips down to tiny shorts, he's he's 80-something, and it's just a a dreadful sight. And and, and all his children and his wife go, oh, no! And then he (laughs) goes and sits in the only bit of sunshine there is in the garden. That's his generation.
1: (laughs) I'm 42, and I still think of myself as about 28, I think. Yeah. Maybe because we're not married as well. I think I still think that like anything could happen to me. And then I think, well no, this is your life now. This you've is got it. Most you've have essentially happened. got a husband and kids.
2: That's why I think my father in law's actually like.
1: he's in his eighties
2: and he doesn't feel like he is. Yeah, yeah. he still wants to play five a side football, he's always been physically fit. For a while we were living in Northumberland while we were having a house done up and my daughter went to the nursery there. So anyway, cut a long story short, I found myself in a parents running race at sports day <laughs> <laughs> did not want to be there, and, there... <laughs> and then I look around and my father-in-law has entered the race because he wants to race me specifically and he's 75 and I'm really thinking well, but perhaps back in the day you were but there's absolutely no way you could beat anybody in a race unless they're also 75 don't be absurd anyway two things happened in the race one was Two of the younger parents both blatantly full started and raced off down the field as if it was the Olympic Games. Oh my
1: God!
2: And then one of the older ones uh, fell over and dislocated his shoulder. <laughs> 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 oh, it was awful! It was in absolute agony. <laughs> and these two idiots who'd full started and was all up the other end waiting for a gold medal and a lap of honour and they didn't realise that someone was calling an ambulance down oh the other my- end. Oh my! And then when the dust settled, my father-in-law came over to me and said, well, you won. I thought, well, I didn't even notice. You were really fixated. I think it lasts your whole life that you feel like you're younger than you are. You think that. This is why I've noticed in my 50s now. This thing about going up and pecking someone on the cheek when you say hello, that's gone with Covid. And thank God, because... I noticed that any women under 30 that I happened to be working with, had I gone in for a peck on the cheek, they would recoil. Oh, really? Sometimes they'd hit the back of the head on the wall (laughs) behind them. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, really, I am as repellent as every other 54-year-old.
1: When I was about maybe 17, on my birthday, Matt Chandler kissed me on the cheek to say happy birthday, and that was the first time... Anyone. I don't think a girl had done it before. We didn't kiss each other on the cheek in my family. No. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, he's kissed me on the cheek. And it was like a real thing of, oh, I'm grown up now. He's kissed me on the cheek, but it doesn't mean that, like, anything. He just wanted to say happy birthday. I really remember where we were.
2: No, that sounds like a very mature individual.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, he is, actually. A very good guitarist. Um, We're Having such (laughs) fun that I've even forgotten to do... I sometimes do this intro. um, uh, Well, I could do the things we do for love. You've already heard us talk loads. So, but here we go. It might be the time you named your dog after the person you fancied then realised it was a bit weird to walk round parks at night shouting their name. I haven't done that. Um, it might be the time you pretended to support Port Vale football team because the guy you fancied did, so you could wear his scarf, which smelt of Lynx and Embassy filter. I have done that.
2: <laughs> Port <laughs> yeah. Vale.
1: I know, I didn't even know where they were till recently. I asked Alice. Yeah, in this Stoke, yeah. Yeah, this guy was in the year above me. and There was a real thing at our school of football. Like, if you fancied a boy and if they fancied you, they might give you their football scarf, and it didn't necessarily mean you were going out with each other, but it was, like, quite a big deal. It felt like something from Greece, not the country. They probably don't wear scarves in Greece because it's so hot. Um, Yeah, it usually is hot, yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) That Um, feels like a little bit... Like they just drape something over you just to let everybody know...
1: I know. (laughs) No-one else at Oswald supported Port Vale. So they definitely (laughs) know that I was his property.
2: Yeah. In fact, (laughs) did he have a load of them in the boot of his car? (laughs) He's got a load of scarves.
1: Got them at the market. Doesn't matter that they're not legit.
2: Could be worse, though, couldn't it? Any other item of clothing, wear this.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, it could be worse. (laughs) And there's not an equivalent... Well, there probably is these days, isn't there? What equivalent could a girl have given to a boy in the 90s to wear to show he was hers? Bags, you know, you used to write stuff on your bags in Tipex. Maybe she could write something. <laughs> <laughs> boys don't really do that as much, though, do they? They don't write, I heart so and so.
2: They don't, because in their peer group, the only thing that matters or not in terms of bragging rights is how far you've got sexually. And so boys will tell lies about what they've achieved in that regard. Yeah. And then if the girl should, quite wrongly, decide to allow them to go all the way, she has then fallen into the trap of becoming a slag immediately. So as long as he goes out with her, she won't be a slag, but the moment he stops going out with her, he'll tell everyone she's a terrible slag and then go out and see if he can find anyone else to have sex
1: with. To give the scarf to? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> give me my scarf back. <laughs> I need to give it to someone else. Do you think it happens now? Everyone at my school know. lost their virginities when they were... Not everyone. A lot of people at my school, I think, were on the early side.
2: Did you have anyone leaving school before GCSEs because they were pregnant and had babies?
1: Oh, no. Not in my I can remember. Did you?
2: Oh, no, I, we didn't. Well, it was a boys' school anyway, but oh. I didn't know anybody that that happened to. Katie knows a couple of girls at her school that that happened to, and the local family planning had to make their presence known around the school.
1: Oh, did they?
2: Because a lot of it appeared to be just out of ignorance, really, and kids not really knowing what they were doing and not necessarily thinking, oh, if I have a baby I won't have to do my exams and I'll get a council flat. It's
1: yeah, not, no, exactly. Yeah. I don't think they necessarily <laughs> sit there and go, hmm, I really like algebra, <laughs> what can I do to try and...
2: sort <laughs> <laughs> pretty Patel view of the world. Well, you know what they're like.
1: <laughs> Ever since they were two they've been conniving.
2: Yeah, how can I get up one of those crappy flats?
1: Yeah, I know. Well, I was in this um, peer education group when I was in the sixth form about HIV and AIDS, and we used to go around and educate people to use condoms. But because we were, like, 17, we all just couldn't believe we were allowed to go on these residentials and stuff like that to do this training. We just all used to, like, get hammered and get off with each other. and like, We did used to remember to use condoms, though, so, I mean, that's good. But it was quite a lot of responsibility to give a young group of people, really.
2: Hate um, was a total game changer. That oh really.
1: Oh my God. I do yeah. remember
2: it really well, all the ads coming on. It was 1981, I think. So I was about 15, just turning 16, and, you know, hoping desperately to have sex with someone at some point in the near future. And then suddenly you had to have condoms in your pocket all the time, which you had no idea really how to use. <laughs> or uh, It was embarrassing to ask for them in shops, it was mortifying. And then it would be embarrassing to get one out. And then you can't get it out of the packet. Which (laughs) way up does it go? And what the whole... So why? That was so unfortunate that we just missed. There was a period of a few years where girls could get on the pill and there was no really seriously dangerous sexually transmitted disease. And that appeared to be a paradise that was going to go on forever and ever. And then that was not the case. Although I do slightly feel like the kind of sexual liberation of the late 60s and early 70s really did feel like a chance for men to say, oh, come on, you're on the pill. What
1: does it matter to you? Yeah, what does it matter? And somehow if everyone's doing it, it's like, come on, everyone's doing it, it's part of the culture now.
2: Yeah, you're frigid, what's wrong with you?
1: Yeah, you're right, (laughs) yeah.
2: The other thing that men like to say, so they'd find out a girl had slept with someone, I'd say she slept with Barry or whatever. course, well, you did it with Barry. Yeah. <laughs> so why can't I ever go then? I know, you're so, so right. You, we well, you had a connection. Barry and I had a connection, however short-lived. You and I don't have a connection. You've just cornered me in the kitchen and you're pissed.
1: I know. It's almost <laughs> like you're talking about, like, well, you made spaghetti bolognese on Tuesday. Why can't you make it on Saturday? You're a bit you won't bury a
2: cheese sandwich.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I remember definitely the progression with um, the treatment for HIV and AIDS is unimaginable from when I was a teenager and we were doing all really this education is. and yeah. stuff. That was the thing that I was scared of getting, I suppose, as well as getting pregnant. But I, I didn't really ever give any thought to things like the clap. They all just seemed really old-fashioned diseases. And, of course, they were up-to-date STDs that were really, you know, not good to get. But AIDS overshadowed everything it was like.
2: started really... It sounds odd, but I got into theatre when I was a teenager at college. I was doing media studies. And O-level theatre was part of the course. And I never would have done drama in a million years. And then I took A-level theatre as well, just cos I was enjoying doing it. And so then they started taking us to see plays... And getting us interested in, again, a world I had no part of before, you know, going to places like the Theatre Royal in Stratford East in East London, which was the nearest to us, really, where I was at college. And then subsequently finding places like the Royal Court, and I joined the Young People's Theatre Scheme at the Royal Court, which is a long way from Essex, but it's a long way to Sloane Square on the Tube, but you go along once a week, take part in workshops and stuff. And I saw a play called The Normal Heart at the Royal Court with Martin Sheen in it, which was about AIDS, in which he played someone who contracted AIDS and was terminally ill. And a lot of it took place with him in bed. And I learnt everything about AIDS that night. And I learnt a lot about gay relationships that night, about which I knew nothing at all, because there weren't any out gay kids in my world. There weren't any at school or even at college. There were one or two who we suspected were gay and we kept reminding them that we suspected they were gay throughout their school life. But that play, afterwards, I went... There's a little pub around the corner from the Royal Court and I was at university at the time in my first year. I think I went on my own. I'd sat in this pub and all around there were couples sitting at tables, quite a lot of men together, some women as well. And they're obviously... Gay people coming together to see this play, and they were openly crying. That three or four tables were people crying their eyes out, who had obviously known somebody who had had AIDS and died. And it was a complete eye opener, really, for me. Perhaps I hadn't really even thought of that until now. That how much I learned about life from going to the theatre in my teens and early twenties that showed me stuff that wasn't on TV, no. right? and it certainly wasn't in my house and it wasn't in my peer group. It was a window on the world. And if you were lucky and you knew people who could point you to what to see, the what was good, and Time Out magazine became quite trustworthy in that time. I remember seeing Woza Albert, which was a play about South Africa, about apartheid in South Africa, with two black South Africans. They would put on red noses like clowns' noses when they were being white people. That's how they knew knew they were being white. They didn't really change their voices much. They'd slightly changed their deportment and they were absurd. Then they had a rack of clothes and they played all these scenes out. I still think that I learnt more about South Africa and about apartheid that night than I ever have by reading or watching anything.
1: Yeah, that makes complete sense. Maybe because you're feeling emotions while you're absorbing the information. It's a story... If you're seeing something incredibly sad, really well written and acted, you're going to absorb the facts it contains and think about them in such a different way from being taught it or reading it in a book.
2: You're absolutely right. You feel the emotional connection. Yeah. It's really powerful. And to see it around you too. And because I was in an impressionable age, I was 17 when I saw Worries around, but 19 when I saw The Normal Heart. And I wrote about in my first book, My Favourite People. I wrote about in those Periods in your teens and your twenties, where you have so many new experiences, and so really, every week, every month is something new, some new song, some new film, but also you know more connected to the subjects of your podcast, emotional experiences to do with feelings about people, about relationships, about connections, about falling in love, falling out of love. Every one of them's new. There's no familiarity to the pattern. You don't yeah. know what's happening to you. And no one can really ha- and anyway you won't listen to anyone, will you? Oh no, you're no. feeling like this now, but you won't soon.
1: I will, I'm gonna die. No. <laughs> but that's why it's so scary because you're completely out of control. You don't know what's gonna happen. You know when you feel like you've fallen in love with someone and you think this is it? There are people who meet when they're fourteen and stay together till they're extremely elderly and then they and so because you have that you think, well, this could be it, I know it's unlikely statistically, but it could be, yeah, of course you can't you can't listen to anyone because the cruel nature of heartbreak is that you feel that you're the only person who's ever experienced this,
2: yes, it is, and the thing that I hope for my kids is that they have sufficient empathy in their makeup that they will understand or try to understand the feelings of the person. That they're with. I think when I was younger, I didn't have that. I didn't. I have a very high opinion of myself. I had quite a troubled time, which I've never really talked about until recently. I wrote this memoir that I've written, just ignore him. Yeah. In that, I detail really what was going on in my home life with my father and after my mother died, which would have been helpful for many of the girls I met in my teens and twenties to have known. So. <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> Some of that, but I didn't really have very high... You might surprise you to know, as a performer and a comedian and an actor, didn't really have very high self-esteem. And I didn't really think that people would really want to be with me anyway. So if I chucked someone or was kind of uncaring in my conduct to the extent that they were really upset, I couldn't really work that out. <laughs> it took me a long time to realise yes. that.
1: I think some of the time, not that you would have been like this, but you know, like if some people seem uncaring or they, they seem emotionally disconnected or that they don't... Like, someone gets chucked and they're like, how could they be so uncaring? It's so often to do with insecurity on the first person's part. In their heart, they don't believe that they were ever worthy of the relationship or that the person wouldn't ever really love them, couldn't ever really love them. And then they're surprised that the other person feels so upset. It feels like arrogance or an uncaring nature, but it's just not, really.
2: Yes, I think that's right. It's sometimes the case that the person just doesn't understand that they've triggered such love from somebody and they're not able to accept it or or because manage can't it. They really
1: deal with it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Why would you want to be with me, you know? Yes. And so lots of relationships get destroyed, I think, by that yeah, insecurity. I I think you're right. And similarly, yeah. I think, with anger, and my five-year-old was really angry this morning because when he woke up, he wanted his mum to get him out of bed and he wasn't going to get up by himself <laughs> and I was not an acceptable substitute. And he stayed in bed screaming the house down, which is thoroughly inconvenient when you're trying to get the other two out of school. And the way he expressed it was with real rage, you know, real go away, you know, <laughs> and his furious face, bless him. And, but... I know, because he's five, that actually he's had a bad night's sleep, he had a bad dream, he wants to cuddle off his mum, and that is probably the same with most of the angry adults. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's the same behaviour. Yeah. And nearly everybody who's angry is in terrible pain Yeah, you're that's so related right. to being five.
1: Yeah. <laughs> My mum's got this theory that you should always let anger up dissatisfaction out or it just festers and turns into other stuff but it's sometimes not that easy to let it out because you it's not like everyone knows their emotions all the time and goes oh i know i'll let it out then i'll feel better people don't admit things to themselves and especially as we get older it gets so complicated
2: yes it does and it's not always easy it's quite a skill and it's something that therapy can help with i think to identify a feeling as it's coming up in you
1: yeah and yes. to be able to
2: spot it and turn it into a thought yes. and turn that thought into speech, it's not easy to do. And sometimes the strength of feeling is so great that it's then enacted in some other behaviour. Yeah. And you think, what are you doing? Why have you smashed that? Why have you done that? Because I've gone straight to action. I've missed out thought and speech. <laughs> I've gone straight to action.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you need to go through... It's like exit through the gift shop. You've got to go through (laughs) thinking about what you're feeling and trying to articulate it. You can't just go to breaking the stereo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: I always remember you saying to me when we were doing Whites, which for anyone who's listening who doesn't know was a great show. I concur; it was a great show. Ten
2: years ago, now we made
1: it. Yeah, BBC Two about a kitchen where Alan played a chef and I played a waitress, and we had lots of absolutely brilliant nights out, didn't we? And in some ways, (laughs) I think even if I, I don't want to go to Hollywood, actually um but maybe in my later years but not at the moment when the kids are so young thanks Steven Spielberg um <laughs> But even if I get to work with, like, I don't know, Judy Dench and some of the greatest actors in the world and do a Hollywood film, I don't think I'll ever have be as happy and joyful as I was when we did Whites. It's literally the most fun I've ever had on a job.
2: Well, it was really fun. Although yeah. I have to say, I think Judy Dench could only have added to the fun.
1: Yeah, no, she definitely <laughs> would. <laughs> she would.
2: God, if, if anything, would there, have made it even more yeah, fun.
1: It would. She's the only person I can think of that could have added to it. <laughs> Um, But I always remember us being out, being really drunk, and I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably can't even remember, but I think you said something like, (laughs) all comics have got some kind of mental issue, not like a massive one necessarily, but that they're all kind of a bit messed up in some way. And I said, I don't agree, I don't think I am. And then since then I've realised that I've got health anxiety and, you know, (laughs) like basically... (laughs) I've <laughs> spent my whole adult life going, oh, was that mould changed? Oh, I better pay to go to Harley Street to have it put under a microscope yet yeah, again. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's so easy to be like, oh, no, I haven't. And I was definitely, I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm really stable, I haven't. Because you hear what you want to hear. You hear someone going, oh, you, you might be messed up. You think, oh, that must mean that I'm really angry and I'm not an angry person. I'm not. But you don't really want to admit that you might, you can't see it. I don't know, until you're ready, maybe.
2: No, but also, you know, it's not exclusive to comedians to have... No, that's true. ..some issue. I mean, the truth of I think, for me, I don't know how I could have held down any gainful employment in my 20s other than being a stand-up comedian. It was an absolute, absolute mess and an aptitude or a joy for comedy. But really, in the end, when you boil it down to the situation, you think there are 1,500 people in this room and I'm going to be the only one talking for two hours. Yeah. That is my happiest two hours of the day. <laughs> <laughs> i remember saying that in my, in my 30s. The only time I'm happy is when I'm on stage and as if that's everyone else's fault.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you were better, this wouldn't be the case. <laughs> Look at me, I
2: have to do this lunacy for a living.
1: But, but like, I haven't gigged, I've done maybe two normal gigs. Do you remember that bit between the two lockdowns where we were allowed, two outdoor ones, one was Greenwich Comedy Festival. And- yes,
2: I did that as well, yes. Yeah.
1: And they were all really spread out, weren't they? And they went like back into the mist and it was mm. really weird because you couldn't get a handle on... Kind of how big the audience were. They weren't a mass like they normally are. But I think it's going to be quite weird to go back to doing gigs. I think I'm going to be really conscious that I'm speaking and that no one else is speaking. (laughs) You know, like when you haven't driven for a while and you're like I'm turning the keys, I'm indicating. I think it's going to be like that for a little bit.
2: Yes, it might be. It might be that people return to normal really quickly, you know. But I do think that everyone's going to be distancing. All the things that we used to do, like the crush at the bar, that mm-hmm. four deep at the bar waving £10 notes at some harassed barmaid while everyone was puffing cigarette smoke. Uh, mm-hmm. That <laughs> Now all the pubs are going to have an app where you can just order your drinks and yeah. someone brings them to your tables and the. Tables will be a little bit further apart, and seating won't be so cramped, and people will wash their hands and use sanitizer and wear face coverings on public transport. that's going to go on for years, i think, so i do i do really I honestly felt physically better the day I heard that a vaccine trial had been successful that I really did think, oh my god, I thought this might be like malaria or t b or h i v where decades of science has not provided a vaccine and some of these conditions you get them for life and I was feeling really pessimistic and the whole situation of not being able to go to a car I'm just very glad I'm not in my 20s because I was gigging so much and getting good at what I was doing by gigging you know what it's like yourself you know especially if you're a musician as well if you're not playing and performing you plateau and eventually you lose your confidence and you have to do it to do it. You have to do it to get good at it. Yeah.
1: And you love it so much and you're addicted to it. You can't stop. I basically sacrificed relationships for it. And when I met someone, it was, well, I used to gig like you, I'm sure, kind of five nights a week, maybe more, doubling up some nights. And yeah,
2: absolutely. If
1: people wanted to go on a date with you. You'd be like, oh, I'm free on Monday afternoon in Soho before I go and pitch my sitcom about a stand up. <laughs> and then I'm going to go and do two gigs, and I don't want you to come because I fancy all those you. And I don't want you to see me die.
2: <laughs> all those commissioning editors have got drawers full of proposals oh. for sitcoms about stand-up comedian. My sitcom about stand-up comedian was ready to go in my head in the early '90s, and I was really thinking about it all the time. You see him do a bit of stand-up, then you see his life. And he's got a girl that he knows, but they're not really in a relationship. He's got a best friend, and they banter. Then you see him do a bit of comedy, and you see where the comedy's come from, and this could really work. And then one night, Seinfeld came on, and it was the exact show! It was the exact show! (laughs) And it was done so perfectly. It destroyed all... It was like someone had come round your house to your office and just taken a flamethrower to the whole thing, (laughs) and then said on the way out, it's for the best. That's all I wanted was to do. But I was the same as that. In fact, when that became well known from television, My ego just went completely skew if and I was paranoid all the time about the press. I was paranoid about being recognised, but at the same time quite liked being recognised. I didn't want to go in pubs because I was worried about someone turning on me, which happened a couple of times. But at the same time, I didn't really want to go somewhere where no one recognised me. It's such a mixed up... And it's a
1: very complicated thing. It's a
2: very complicated thing that you thought was going to bring you unalloyed pleasure. But the truth of it is also, in the relationships I was in in those days, if work came... Up, I would just put it in the diary. I wouldn't consult my girlfriend and say, I've been offered this, what do you think? I would just put it in the diary and it would be there. That's that's happening then, I'm doing that then. Now when I look back, I think, can you imagine being in a relationship with somebody like that who's just completely single-minded, boxed off, doesn't consult you on any subject, probably thinks, you're quite lucky to be going out with me because, you know, I'm on the BBC...
1: Yeah, no, it's true. And The other person does just... I went out with a stand-up in the noughties before I'd started it, really. I was sort of thinking about it, but not really doing it. And I'd, I'd written these awful sketches with my housemate about these two women who set up an animal hospital, but everyone brings cuddly toys and the women think that they're real animals. I mean, it was just <laughs> awful. You know, like you go and see those are really left-field character and sketch nights, I don't even know if they still exist, I hope they do, where people do really weird stuff. It wasn't even like that, it was just like, this is nothing, what are you doing? So anyway, I was sort of just doing bits of acting and stuff where I could and working in a lot of call centres, working as a cleaner and stuff. And he was doing the Avalon Network.
2: Around colleges and yeah.
1: stuff. Yeah, so Avalon used to own a lot of the uni gigs maybe still do, but you do this sort of circuit of all the unis and you're kind of on the road, often with the same act for a long period of time. He used to just hand me his booking forms and go, this is where I'm going to be. And that is in a way, the way it has to be when you start because you're just grafting. So I'd sort of go to all these unis and, and then I didn't know that I'd be doing them myself sort of five years later, going into the same student unions and Going to Loughborough and frigging hell, Loughborough. I used to go and yeah. do Loughborough University.
2: Loughborough was one of the better oh. ones, though. Did
1: you think that? At least it had a stage <laughs>
2: and <yeah>. an audience. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. But, my God, I God, just used to get... This guy ran on stage once at Loughborough's Summer Balls. Remember you would go and do the Summer Balls in, like, a Oh, no,
2: they were awful. Everyone's oh, just Lord. slaughtered at 4 God, o'clock everyone, in the afternoon.
1: Yeah, and this guy <laughs> ran up and grabbed the mic off me and went this is what I think of your act, into the mic, and then pulled a Mooney at the audience, then ran uh, off. And then you have to sort of try and carry on. And it's just, Loughborough, for me, was always my, like, if I, even if I saw the word Loughborough, I'd just think, oh, God. yes. Yeah, so I think sometimes you go in with a bit of a self-fulfilling... Prophecy.
2: Yeah, but that's appalling, and that's the sort of story that you hear women in comedy tell. You know, he'd have thought twice if you were six-foot-tall male, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. You know, that's not to say that male comedians haven't had the mic ripped out of their hands or been threatened or what. I remember one time doing a gig at Jongleurs in Camden, quite rowdy, and I made the mistake, which I very rarely did, of talking about football and mentioning that I'm an Arsenal supporter, and this is always a bad idea because most of the people in the room will support other teams and hate your team. So (laughs) unless you really don't give a shit or unless you've got something really funny to say about it, just leave it out. We talk about something (laughs) else. And there was a guy in the audience who was a Tottenham fan and he was shouting at me. And I got the entire audience to tell him to shut up and call him a wanker, which they did, because they thought it was hilarious. Then I was in the dressing room backstage... And I'd had a bright red shirt on, I think, but I'd put a jumper on. Anyway, this guy bursts in the dressing room, furiously angry. My then girlfriend was in the toilet. He's going, Where's that effing last bloke? <laughs> and.
1: Uh, oh, he didn't recognise me. He didn't
2: recognise me. And I think because I put a jumper on, <laughs> he didn't recognise me. And he was kicking the toilet door. My girlfriend was in there and he was going, Get out of there! And I think uh, Mickey Hutton, I think, was there. And then uh, Mickey Hutton, I think, said he's left. And he left. But, I mean, he would definitely have gone for me. And he was so furious. I think he'd have just taken my head off. That would have been the end of everything. <laughs> <laughs> my girlfriend would have come out of the toilet and I'd just been decapitated. And then the bouncer turned up at the door. And uh, the guy who'd burst in said to the bouncer, oh, he went that way, mate. And sort oh of sold God. him a dummy, and the bouncer went the wrong way down the corridor, and he came back, and we're going that was him the one who told you to go that way that was him he's just coming here kicking the doors in and threatening him. Uh, no Ugh.
1: that's like a farce that you yeah. know, like, he went that way but like how would yeah. the guy know yeah. that the bouncer was looking? <laughs> It's like when someone yeah. comes out in a white coat and says, I'm the doctor, then they're the mental patient. Like He went that way, mate. <laughs> do you know I'm looking for someone?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. He had the look of someone who's looking for someone. But, no, I did that. Was I think that sounds awful. That's definitely... I feel like that, oh, that God, happened I mean, to you because you're a girl. Well,
1: maybe, yeah. I mean, that is the frigging tip of the iceberg. Mm. The worst one was when I did... Um, there's a uni whose student union is near the Albert Hall. I've got a feeling it's London School of Economics. Have you ever done it?
2: I, no, it doesn't ring a bell. Um,
1: I don't want to diss London School of Economics unnecessarily. So I, I can't quite remember which uni it was, but anyway, their union... I think,
2: as an institution, I think they'll survive this podcast.
1: Oh, actually, Ben's saying it in the chat. Is it Imperial College? Yeah, it is Imperial College. Do you think Imperial College will probably survive this podcast as well, won't they?
2: I would hope yeah.
1: so. <laughs> I mean, if they won't survive this podcast, they've got no hope for surviving. I think
2: or. I'd go as so far as to say they're one of the most important educational <laughs> and research <laughs> institutions in the world.
1: But the podcast, <laughs> the things we do for love, brought them down. Um, so I did that gig um, and it was a ball where they all had to wear wristbands and they'd been drinking all day. If you had a wristband, you could have unlimited booze. I was closing, oh no. I was supposed to do 40 minutes I went on at 2 in the morning as well. The gig hadn't started oh, no, till 11. No, no, oh, no. my God, it was just... Um, it's interesting when you analyse it, isn't it? I'd done about 30 minutes, and it had just been one of those really boring gigs where really nothing had happened. Some of them had laughed. There was not really any focus in the room. They were probably quite tired bit. by
2: that point, were Yeah, eh? they
1: were a bit tired. They needed a wee, the wee. they'd drunk so much. Um, but it felt really like a non-event, and I thought... I feel like I want to kind of wind it up and close it in a memorable way, and I did, uh, because there was a guy in the front row, and they were everyone started saying, that guy's a virgin, that guy's a virgin. Isn't it funny how that's the thing that you tease people about, even at uni? Like we was saying at school, it's all about how far you've got, isn't it? And at my school, people were called gay as an insult, which is awful. Anyway, I said, come on stage. Got the guy on stage. I'd never do this now. But anyway, I said, do you want to know what it's like to feel a real woman's arm? And he said, yeah. So I put my (laughs) arm out. Which I actually think is quite cool. A quite funny thing to say. And he put his hand under my arm and grabbed my boob. So this is in front of probably 200 people, maybe. And no one really did anything. And I've heard far worse stories than this. From Sarah Kendall used to tell a story in one of our Edinburgh shows about... Oh, my God, a guy just shouting horrendous stuff at her and nearly throwing a chair at her. And and I felt like in the grand scheme of things afterwards, I was sort of really in shock. And I thought, well, you know, he didn't threaten to throw a chair at me and stuff. But it was really so humiliating. It was like I was there to do my job. And he just, you know, he wouldn't have done that to a guy. Of course he wouldn't. That was really one of the reasons I stopped, I think, wanting to do those uni gigs. I was kind of at the end of doing that circuit anyway, really. But
2: oh, should have just walked out of the door and never gone near another one of I them. No,
1: I think that might have been the last one I did. But the weird thing was that, like, everyone was so shocked about it that no-one really did anything. And I kept trying to finish... You know, you've got this instinct to end on a laugh. Even in that situation, I was like, I can't walk off now. It feels like I've lost all the power.
2: Until the the police arrive.
1: Yes, I'll (laughs) let them close the gig. They've got a few jokes.
2: (laughs) That's assault, so we'll just wait for the police to arrive. (laughs) (coughs) I,
1: I hope it wouldn't happen now, or that if it did, it would be more widely condemned in the room. Now Me Too's happened and... Yeah, yeah, you would hope. 9 years ago maybe? But,
2: yeah. Yeah, that's kind of Late night drunkenness leads to so many disastrous encounters where the person doing it is going to be less than conscious of what they're actually doing, and the person on the receiving end, and they're not in your case because you're stone cold sober and working, yeah. but so many blurred lines are there about what's consensual and what isn't. And the degree of alcohol abuse, and the size of measures, and the strength of the drinks that students drink now is off the charts from when we said stuff. When I was 18, 19, four pints, and I'm really drunk. Six pints is the absolute giddy limit, cannot walk, and anything more than that, I'll throw up. Four pints of beer. I mean, not bombs and shots and pints of spirits. These kids, what are they doing to themselves?
1: I know, that's what I think. I used to have a pint and three quarters before I'd throw up, so I could have... (laughs) I'd have half a Stella. I used to drink Stella as well. I can't I used to drink Stella. This is when we used to go out in Matlock, which I did from about the age of 15, actually. Half a Stella in the first place, half a Stella in the second place, and then I'd buy a pint of Stella in the third, and I'd drink three quarters of it and then give a quarter to whoever was around, because I knew if I had that last quarter, I'd throw up within half an hour. And then the night we got our um, GCSE results, I went out and drunk a pint of Bailey's and then was sick within about 10 minutes and just had to go yeah, home. that
2: would do that. If you want to be sick...
1: Yeah, are going to have a, to have a lovely
2: time, have a Baileys. <laughs> if you want
1: to. definitely want to throw your guts up, have a pint of Baileys. <laughs> Why not have a pint of Baileys? it sort,
2: sorted of out their ad campaign for Christmas.
1: <laughs> Do you remember that <laughs> advert for Baileys where the guy from El Dorado carried up a massive sack of ice up the stairs to a beautiful woman and he said, you want ice, you got ice. Remember that?
2: What <laughs> he say? If you want fleas, you've got fleas. <laughs> I'll get anything. of it.
1: You could put anything in there.
2: She's thinking, can you please let me out of this room now? <laughs> I asked for a bushel of ice in the hope that you'd never come back.
1: You got me a sack. <laughs> Do you remember drinking Perno and black and then your sick was purple?
2: I remember it being around. The one I remember was Snakebite and Black. Oh,
1: God, yeah, I remember Snakebite and Black.
2: Snakebite and Black, and everyone was going, oh, my God, snake!" All it was was half a lager and half a cider with some Ribena in it, basically. (laughs) But we decided amongst us as teenagers that this stuff was really lethal. This was like drinking nitroglycerin or something. And, of course, it'd be much worse to drink shit like vodka... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but the thing about it was, it was delicious and sort of tasted a little bit like Tizer or something you'd drink the year before when you are in the lower fourth.
1: That's when, do you <laughs> remember when Alco Pops really boomed onto the market? And I think really the appeal was then it doesn't taste like booze, it tastes like something from your childhood, but it's also going to make you really pissed.
2: Yeah, that's what cocktails are.
1: Yeah. Oh my God, Yo. I love cocktails that have like Bailey's. Yeah, I've got a real weakness with Baileys, but, like, <laughs> Baileys, ice cream, cream. I hate cocktails that are sophisticated, you know, like with an i live in them. Or I love things that are basically like a pudding. You know, it's like probably all your calories for the whole day.
2: Have you ever had that drink that James Bond has?
1: Yeah, I have, yeah. 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 I mean, I
2: had one of those.
1: It's just rank. I know.
2: This drink is missing certainly some Ribena and it <laughs> would help.
1: <laughs> I'd love to hear him more. Bond had had
2: Ribena... Yeah. <laughs>
1: Stick a bit of Ribena in there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can't drink it otherwise. <laughs> Stephen Fry told me he's read all every book that's ever been written. That's how it feels anyway. And he told me that he's read all the James Bond books. And that Bond, in the books, Bond smokes 80 cigarettes a day. And, uh, and it really is <laughs> kind of almost like a sort of a death wish on legs. <laughs> So it's no surprise he drinks a revolting of course, drink. Of
1: course, of course. He's got the taste of fags in his mouth all the time.
2: If he drank cider and black, it would be... T- and he had a West Country accent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when I went to gigs, I used to take 60 fags. And I went to see Cypress Hill when I was about 17 or 18. And I took 20 b 20 Marlborough Red and 20 Embassy Filter... Wow. And I don't know what I thought was going to happen.
2: Just for an evening out? Yeah,
1: I just thought someone might need a fag, I don't know, it might get stranded there. I'm like, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah oh, I smoked a lot of... I used to collect fag packets in my teens.
1: What, like unusual think, ones or just every day? And
2: yeah, I would just buy different fags just to have the packet, keep it for my collection. That's a bit grim, isn't it? <laughs> you know. I mean, you could get cigarettes when I was 11 or 12 from a vending machine on the pavement outside the tube station. Wow. And then you'd go in the pub at 15 and get them from the machine on the wall. I remember the
1: machine machine had money sellotape to the outside of it. It was changed. Yeah, in Matlock anyway. There was like 50p sellotape to the outside of every packet. I suppose you had to put in six quid or less.
2: You know, the best thing that happened in that regard was banning smoking because that basically stopped a lot of people smoking. It
1: stopped a lot of people like me who would go for months without one, then would go up to Edinburgh and smoke four a night. I'm one of those really annoying people who can just dip in and out of it. But that stopped me, that just knocked it on the head. I remember going skiing in France before the bad had come in in England and I loved skiing so much. And I remember we couldn't smoke inside and I just didn't smoke. So I was like, I'm not fucking getting my coat on and my hat and scarf and leaving my drink.
2: Yeah, it's a bit grim all that, isn't it? For a while I think I was smoking quite a lot of weed and I think I thought I liked weed, but actually I was just putting tobacco in the joints and... <laughs> just keeping a nicotine a healthy yes. nicotine <laughs> habit going but I, I, to me it was so, as a kid it was so cool to smoke there could be nothing cooler than smoking i tried thing. to smoke like james dean yeah. a girl i fancied said that james dean was the most beautiful man that had ever lived and so i tried to as <laughs> so a picture of him with a cigarette in the corner of I his know mouth exactly which one you but mean. sticking straight forward
1: yes right?
2: yes i tried to smoke <laughs> 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 all that happens is the filter gets really soggy. But also, Paul Weller was a big hero of mine and the jam. And I, I saw the jam play a few times. And he would smoke and he'd put his cigarette at the end of the fretboard of his guitar and then thrash out another three minute classic with everyone knows all the words and it's absolutely exhilarating. And then he'd have a drag on that. And once he had one of their album sleeves, the inner sleeve, I think it was, or maybe it was the back of it. I think it was all mod cons. Anyway, they had a picture of stuff that they liked, records that they liked. It's all kinds of mod memorabilia and stuff like that. And in the middle of that was a packet of Rothmans. And thereafter, I tried to smoke Rothmans, which were Hmm. disgusting.
1: I met this guy at a festival once when I was smoking (laughs) a weird brand of cigarette, Camel Lights, because they were the only things you could buy at this festival. And then we started seeing each other. And a few weeks later, he was like just doesn't seem right to me that you smoke Marlboro Lights because when I first met you, you smoked Camel Lights and it seems wrong that you smoke Marlboro Lights. And I was like, um... It was kind of like a real nail in the coffin because I was like, <laughs> what? Like, you've got this idea of me that I smoke Camel Lights. That sometimes happens when you meet people at a festival. You're like, oh, you're this, that's what you do. And it was like, well, no, I was only right. smoking them because they were only, the only fag there. But also, if this is a sticking point for you, then surely there's not much of a future for you. <laughs> <It's laughs> like, <laughs> you can't deal with me smoking...
2: That is an appalling brand, though, isn't it? The branding of a cancer stick as a mild version. Oh, sure. Holy smoke.
1: Yeah. Our
2: kids now, they can't even see cigarettes, you know. But I know that lots of people are smoking and lots of people are smoking weed and stuff And a lot
1: salt, of
2: people are vaping. I saw a bloke vaping the other morning and it was about one degree. It was a really cold school run. And he was vaping and it, it was making about as much smoke as the average... I remember... <laughs> I remember... Jeremy Hardy... did a joke once about they're always going on about how it's our fault the environment we've got to not have this sort of fridge or not do this and it's not I might have a couple of squirts under my armpit but I'm not corn chemical plant am I (laughs) and it really made the point that the big companies and the industries and the corporations were getting away with mass pollution and we were all supposed to go around worrying about whether we'd turn the bedside lamp off and uh But anyway, this bloke was vaping, and it was like Runcorn Chemical, but it was extraordinary. (laughs) I remember seeing the Pretenders do a gig once at the Lyceum in the 80s, and they had a smoke machine on, and someone didn't turn it off, and after a while, the smoke was falling off the stage. It was dry ice, actually, I think, in enormous quantity, and you could hear Chrissie Hynde just losing it because she couldn't see the rest of the band or the audience. (laughs) <laughs> someone's going to get fired. Eventually it cleared and she did another song. But it was like that, this... <laughs> I used to smoke in cold weather because I thought it kept me warm somehow.
1: Well, I suppose when you are a smoker, there's something very ritualistic about lighting a fag. Maybe the very act of it was comforting, so you sort of, I don't know, felt... Yeah. Oh, you mean you actually kept warm because it's a light and the, the heat coming from the I fag? Think. yeah. I couldn't
2: see a negative to smoking, any negatives at all. I was so invested in smoking as something cool to do. I thought it was cool. I thought girls liked it. I thought it made me look cool. I thought it was cool. And it was a a shocking waste of money and entirely life-threatening. And I just stank for 25 years.
1: Yeah, same here. (laughs) It's weird. It's like, you know when you're younger, when you're a teenager, you sort of think, if I want to change myself, I can I used to think I could change my personality or that I could... It's probably that someone I fancied smoked, and I thought, I know, if I smoke, they'll go out with me. It's probably how it started. And then, like, ten years later, you're going, why am I spending thousands of pounds a year on this? I'm a student. I've got oh, no money. Like,
2: like, and it's just stupid, wanky little things. I got, I got an antique cigarette case, a silver thing, that when a popped it open and they were under a little bit of elastic what a wanker oh, god, going around with that thing and I, I had to buy a particular brand of cigarettes to fit in it because this thing came from the 20s I think yes the cigarettes didn't have filters on <laughs> all the girls were smoking sobrani because they were colored do you remember those colored cigarettes yes
1: I do oh my god yeah yeah everyone
2: trying to find a way to be cool and get off of each other all got mouths like ashtrays everyone's carpets had burns in why was that cool that became, didn't it? The great cliche in films was that a couple would go at it, hell for leather. And, and then, then have at a the bag. End they'd have a cigarette.
1: It was like a shorthand for <laughs> they've just had sex. Yeah, yeah. you'd
2: see some, one of the great beauties of the day, like Julie Christie or Faye Dunaway or someone. And as a schoolboy, these women are just extraordinary. Just, I just don't know what's happening to you when you look at yes. these women. And then when their hair's all mussed up and they've got a bit of a sheet covering half of them and then they light a cigarette. Surely this is human perfection. I know. Oh, well, actually, they need a wee need and a wash. <laughs> they need a wee <laughs> and a, and and a wash. And they need to brush their teeth.
1: I <laughs> mean, <laughs> <then> they've forgotten <laughs> to hang the washing out. <laughs> Thank you. It's flown by. It really has.
2: It's, ple- it's a pleasure. Oh. It doesn't feel like a... Doing a thing. It feels like, well, this is our life at the moment, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, exactly. As we record
2: in a period of lockdown, talking <laughs> yes. to someone in a tiny window. <laughs>
1: no, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. Mm. Um, the things we do for love. <laughs> <laughs> the things we do for love. <laughs> I hope you're clapping at home, by the way, wherever you're listening to this. Um, this mm. week I was talking to...
2: Alan Davis.
1: His favourite umbrella mm. is...
2: One of those see-through ones that comes right down over you.
1: Oh, yes, I know, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to get one of those, actually. They're great.
2: <laughs> I was never bold enough to wear one because when I grew up, they were for girls. Boys didn't have them.
1: Oh, no, yes, exactly. It's very weak to have an umbrella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, One more. Oh, oh, I'll ask a question about Kate. Oh, have two more, actually. Katie's Ooh. favourite film is...?
2: Uh, Dumb and Dumber.
1: Oh, OK. Oh, that's a good choice.
2: Yeah.
1: And... Can you, can you, this isn't a favourite one. Can you moonwalk, yes or no?
2: <laughs> a little bit. And once I did a film, I've only done about two parts of films in my life. And I did this film called Angus, Thongs and Perfect Snogging. Yes, I've
1: seen it. Karen Taylor's your wife in it. That's right. And it's a sort
2: of a teen comedy based on a series of books written by a great friend of mine who's now passed away, sadly, Adley-Louise Renison. But I play the dad and I'm at this kid's party and I've got to moonwalk and we haven't done a rehearsal or anything at all. And Gorinda Chadder, the director, was a bit unsympathetic, frankly. And she she said, are you ready to do this? And I said, are we going to practice it? She said, well, do you need a practice? It's just a moonwalk. (laughs) And I said, well, all right, we'll just go for it. And she turned around to this huge crew, about 200 people in the room in this nightclub somewhere, and she goes, all right, let's just do it. Alan's shitting himself. Oh, God! (laughs) (laughs) That was the single most unsympathetic bit of direction I've ever been on the receiving end of. So then, from that moment on, I did start to shit myself, and then I did a moonwalk, and actually, in the film, you can't even see it.
1: God. God. It's that moment where there's people... I had to drive in Man Down, a sitcom that I was in, with Greg Davies, and the director said, you can drive, can't you? And I said, yeah. I said, I don't really like driving. I won't say I'm a natural driver, but I can drive. I have got my driving licence. And uh, I had to drive a Mini, and I was used to driving an automatic, and I must have stalled it. I'm not joking. 30 times and it was a really really quick scene just where i had to say bye to him then drive off i couldn't start it i couldn't put the brake on i had to put sandbags down in front of where it cause i had to drive into shot and a runner had to hold on to it and slow it down but like, fucking hell and the problem is the more you do it and you can see people going oh my god do you
2: remember stephen white on whites yeah, what, did he, have he to- had to drive and he couldn't drive and not only did he have to drive, he had to speed in like a boy racer with the car going <sighs> like this. And they said, Right, we're going to start over there. And he goes, Oh, I can't drive. <laughs> what do you, mean you can't drive. <laughs> no, I can't drive. It's never been a problem before. And so three men had to push the car as hard as they could so it arrived at some sort of speed.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and then they put some engine noises Fucking on it.
1: <laughs> right. Thank you. It's been so nice. I really felt like we've had a coffee together or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's been nice. Yeah. And that was me chatting to Alan Davies about the things we do for love. Alan's own podcast, Seven Pillars. Um, Not pillars, like pillar fight. Pillars as in a pillar of strength, which he certainly is. Um, Seven Pillars is out now. It's only just started going out. I appeared on it and I really loved doing it. You basically have to pick seven things that you love, like books and films and stuff like that, and music. And you talk about the memories attached to them. It's a really good idea and um, it was a lovely chat. And he's got great guests appearing on that. So his podcast, Seven Pillars, is out now. And his memoir, Just Ignore Him, is out in paperback right now. So please grab a copy of that and basically devour everything he has ever produced and my own book is out which I will plug at the end of every episode of my own podcast Um, it's called Jane is Trying and I'll try and explain it in three words um jittery anxious maybe yeah That's sometimes you get asked to do that in interviews can you describe it in three words not sure I'd buy it if I heard maybe at the end of um, the three words but it is you know I've worked really hard on it it took me four years so please if you can buy a copy of my book, Jane is Trying, which is out on July the 22nd. And I will try and think of a better three words to describe it for the next episode of The Things We Do for Love. So watch this space. And if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed our last episode, if you enjoyed the series that we did five years ago, please um, subscribe, leave a review, tell people about it. And we want to spread the word and uh, we'll see you next time. The Things We Do For Love was hosted by me, Izzy Sutty, and featured my guest, Alan Davies. The theme music is by Charlie Jefferson. The Things We Do For Love is produced by Ben Walker for Fuzz Productions and the Internet.
2: Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title.